All right, time for the kids to come on up front. Come on up, come on up. Find somewhere to sit. Hello. All right, keep coming. We'll make room for you. All right, good to see everyone this morning. Now, I have a question to start things off. Who is someone who lives in your house with you? Parents, brothers and sisters, mom and dad. Yeah. Cousins sometimes, yeah. So we usually have family who usually lives with us, right? We have family. Now, the Bible says that all of us have sin, right? We have things we do and we say that are displeasing to God. And if your family are the people who are closest with you, they're the people you spend the most time with and you interact with the most, guess who's going to see, guess whose sin you're, excuse me, guess whose sin you're going to see the most? That of your family, right? The people you live with, you're going to see their sin. You're going to observe that, aren't you? So when someone in your family sins against God, what do you think you should do about that? How should you respond to that? It's kind of a good question to think about, right? If you live with these people and they're going to sin, you're going to see it. What do you do about that? How do you respond, right? So we'll think about that. Now, today in our Bible passage, we're going to be reading about a family, okay? Who have we been looking at recently with the flood? Noah and his family, right? And we'll see Noah and his three sons. Now, remember that after the flood, Noah and his sons came out of the ark, right? And the first thing we see that Noah did was worship God, right? Do you remember that? He worshiped God. And now Noah needs to kind of settle down, right? He needs to, he's coming off the, the ark after a year. He kind of needs to get established, right? Now, even though Noah was a godly and faithful man, he still had sin. He still had sin too, even though he was overall, he's characterized by godliness and faithfulness. So one day he got drunk and he was laying in his home without any clothes on. Can you believe that? That was not good, was it? And then one of his sons, one of his sons was named Ham. That's kind of a strange name, right? But one of his sons was named Ham. And Ham came in and he saw his father Noah's sin. So he had a choice, right? He had to choose how he was going to react. What would he do about this? And do you know what he did? He made fun of his father. He made fun of him, and he even went outside of the home to tell his brothers about their father's sin. You know, and so he was saying, you have to go see what dad is. Dad is such a fool. That wasn't very respectful, was it? Very honoring. But he had that choice. So now Noah's other sons, the other two sons, Japheth and Shem, they heard about this from their brother. And now they have a choice, right? How are they going to react to their father's sin? What are they going to do about it? Are they going to join with their brother Ham in making fun of their father and how he was treating them? him? Well, Japheth and Ham treated their father differently than Ham did. They treated their father with honor. They honored their father. They didn't tell others about, others about his sin. They didn't make fun of him. In fact, they didn't even look at him in his sin. They didn't want to see their father in his sin. And so they covered him up without even looking at him. So Ham, one of the sons, dishonored their father, and the other two sons showed honor to their father even in his sin. And so God commands us Right? One of God's commands to us are honor your father, right? Honor your father and mother. Honor your father. So let me ask you guys, what are your ideas? What does it look like for you as children to honor your father? What could that look like? What could that entail? Who has an idea? Anybody? Obey them. Yeah, to obey your father. That would be honoring, right? Anybody else have other ideas? What does it look like to honor? Go ahead. Say it, Jeremiah. Yeah, to be nice and kind to them, to show your father respect, right? 
don't disrespect them, right? Show them respect. To speak kindly to your father. To speak kindly about your father, respectfully. To submit to his authority. In other words, to follow what he asks you to do, right? And even to forgive him when he sins. Because your father is going to sin too. And you're going to see it. And so you can forgive your father too when he sins. So may each of you follow God's command to honor your father. So thanks for coming up, guys. You can go back and we'll hear Pastor Jeremy preach. Thanks, Pastor Jeff. Uh, We are continuing in the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 9. If you have a Bible, please turn there with me. If you don't, there are Bibles under the seats in front of you. Genesis chapter 9. So Genesis is the first book in the Bible. And chapter 9 is on page uh, 6 and 7 of those Bibles in front of you. Uh, We've been in Genesis since the beginning of January. uh, So nearly eight months. And those months we've covered the first nine chapters. Um, And one of the striking things about this is, isn't how long I've taken to get through them, but in those uh, nine chapters, from Adam to Noah is nearly 2,000 years of human history. The amount of time covered here is something. If you take the genealogies in the Bible and add them together, we uh, would think that the earth is somewhere around 6,000 years old. And so in these first nine chapters, we're covering a third of human history. Isn't that something? Uh, a lot. We've, we've seen uh, in these uh, nine chapters, God speaking creation into existence and creating a garden and putting Adam and Eve in there. He, we saw the first wedding uniting Adam and Eve together as one flesh. We saw the awfulness of Satan's temptation of Eve and Adam falling into ruin, which brought all of us down with him. We saw the first murder, uh, and then we saw the flood, and now we're seeing here the rescue of Noah and his family. And so I just wanted to impress on you again, the Bible's a wonder. Nine chapters, 2,000 years, and all these events put before you an accurate history, God-ordained history of our beginnings and our fall and God's beginning of redemption. And I just enjoy the Bible. Huh? It's, it's amazing. It's unlike anything else you have. And uh, so I just want to impress that on you. And then, and then today's text, we're, we're going to see a man that's called Righteous, um, a man in Hebrews 11 is called a man of faith and sin. And so you're going to see you. Um, we're going to meet ourselves. That is, righteous men and women sin and do so very shamefully, embarrassingly. And, and we, we have to remember that we are uh, loved by God, saved by him, forgiven of all of our sin, and yet we'll still sin grievously. And so let's not be pretentious. Let's not feign like we're perfect. Um, and, and then we're going to meet a man who embarrassed his family greatly in the sin of drunkenness. And some of you lo- uh, grew up with uh, parents who got drunk a lot. And there's pain here, uh, fear. You have to control your life because everything was out of control at home. Um, and so you're going to meet some pain here maybe. And I want to encourage you to turn to God in Christ with that pain. And to learn to honor your mother or father, even in that pain and shame. Uh, and so there's some stuff here. And let's uh, ask God for faith and mercy to receive it. Let me read uh, Genesis 9, 18 to 29 and pray. And then we'll look at God's sovereignty here. Uh, so Genesis nine eighteen, The sons of Noah went for, uh, the sons of Noah who went forth, From the ark were Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth 
were dispersed. So here's your descendants. Um, you are likely uh, descended from Jepheth. That's, that's your uh, forefather from long ago. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants, a slave of slaves, that is, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant, his slave. May God enlarge Jepheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant or slave. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Let's pray. You save us, Heavenly Father, according to the promises of your word. And so teach us now to trust in your word, to hope in your rules, to keep your law continually by faith, by your grace. For your word is a delight and worthy of our faithful attention. And so God, by your spirit now, help us to be attentive. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Part of the purposes of these verses and the reason why they're here at this place in Scripture, obviously they happened here, but um, you you see in verse 18 you have this little parenthesis, Ham was the father of Canaan. Uh, These are getting you ready for what's about to happen. That is, sooner uh, rather than later in the Bible, you're going to wonder where the Egyptians came from. And you're going to wonder where the Canaanites came from. When you get in the book of Exodus and you see Israel enslaved in uh, Egypt and then they're freed and they go to the promised land where the Canaanites dwell and they're going to destroy the Canaanites. If you paid attention here, you're going to realize that Israel are fighting uh, their own family. (laughs) Uh, The Egyptians, uh, you see in 10.6, are the descendants of Ham. Uh, And so here, brothers enslaving brother in Exodus. And then you see that the Canaanites that God had told the Israelites to destroy, sparing none, are descendants of Ham. And and so uh, we're getting some background, some preparation for what's to come in the Bible and preparation of the, the greatest work of salvation prior to the cross. God is here laying the groundwork for what he will then do in rescuing his people by his great power and mercy. And so this is more than just his interesting historical factoid. We are here again seeing, uh, coming face to face with what we sang in the second or third song this morning, uh, Blessed Be Your Name. You sang this morning, Blessed Be Your Name, You Give and Take Away. You give and you take. We, we sung there the uh, truth of God's absolute control. His authority to do as he pleases. And we see that here also. Why did God create Ham? And why did God give Ham sons of Egypt and Canaan. Why? What is God doing here? He's preparing peoples that will enslave the descendants of Shem, that he will come and destroy by his great power and bring judgment on them, and then deliver the descendants of Shem to a land of Canaanites. Well, his power again will be on display as he destroys them. So again, when we come to the Bible, we don't want to be ashamed of any part of it. And here we're coming up against a very difficult reality. 
God does, God saves one and judges another. God chooses one to be his people and not another. And this fact of God's sovereignty is explained really clearly for us in Romans 9. So if you would keep your finger here and turn towards the back of the Bible to the book of Romans in the New Testament. So Romans is, let's say, seven-eighths of the way through the Bible, uh, after the book of Acts, before the first and second Corinthians. And in Romans 9, um, verses 15 to 23, we have this truth uh, shown for us, answering the question, okay, why Egypt? Why Pharaoh? How can God blame if he raised them up to show his power and judgment and his mercy and deliverance? So Paul is answering a question based on God's sovereignty. In verse 13, we see a quote here from the Old Testament, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay? Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so then the question is asked, is God unjust? That's verse 14. Right? That's, the, that's what you and I respond to, this doctrine in our flesh, like, how could God blame them? Is man a robot? Is God unjust? Paul says, by no means. And then let me just read 15 to 23. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And if we're relating that to our verses, I will have mercy on Shem and not on Ham. I will have compassion on Shem and his descendants, but not on Ham and his descendants, Egypt and Canaan. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, to the descendants of Ham, to Egypt, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he, God, has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? See, here's the, here's the humanistic argument. Here's us in our flesh. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts higher than ours. We're wrestling with the injustice, the seeming injustice of the statement. And so we want to find fault with God. Why would God find fault? Who can resist him? And here's Paul's answer in verse 20. Here's what we as Christians have the faith to believe. Here's the answer to your question here. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump? If you're relating that to our story, to make out of the same Noah. A vessel for honorable use, a Shem. And another for dishonorable use, a Ham. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which is prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called not only Jews, but also from the Gentiles. We'll see later on in our passage that as Noah is blessing Shem and then Japheth, the blessing of Japheth is that Japheth might find residence in the tents of Shem. Japheth is the ancestor of all the Gentiles. You and me. Unless you're Jewish. No offense. And what um, Noah is praying God would do is let the Gentiles find salvation in one of the Jews, Jesus Christ. 
And so here, we see this happening. Even us, whom he called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Not only from Shem, but also from Japheth and his descendants. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, the Gentiles, will call, I will call my people, and her who was not my beloved, the descendants of Japheth, I will call my beloved. All right. So here in these verses, we meet the doctrine of God's sovereignty. We sung it this morning, he is sovereign over bringing rain and bringing tornadoes. He is sovereign over you uh, getting a clean diagnosis and you getting a diagnosis of a terminal illness. He is sovereign over a fat bank account and a thin bank account. He is sovereign over a happy marriage and a miserable one. And he is sovereign over whom he saves and whom he does not. Now this doctrine is really difficult. It's not difficult necessarily to understand. That's true. It's more difficult to emotionally come to grips with. um, Some hate it. I mean, hate it. So why bring it up? Why raise the issue of God's sovereignty? Why draw attention to it? We could have just preached right on through this and none of us would have considered it probably. Um, There there are lots of responses. Um, One is I want you to trust that when it's in the Bible, we'll preach it. And, And we'll do so very straightforwardly, lovingly, of course. But we're not gonna skip over things because they could cause problems. We have faith in God to preach the truth as it stands. Second, though, we sing songs like, Behold Our God. We sing songs like, Immortal, Invisible. We sing songs like, Blessed Be Your Name. And we don't want to sing them and lie. When we sing, Behold Our God, we're singing, Behold This God. We're singing, Behold Our God who has mercy on whom He wills and hardens whom He wills. We we want to know the God who is God. We want to know what He's revealed of Himself to us. And so... I want to sing that song knowing this God as he is. I want to sing that song knowing that my salvation is in the hands of this sovereign God. I want to know, I want to sing the songs of this God who has from all eternity planned this redemption and fulfilled it. Who here in Genesis 9 is preparing peoples that will play major roles in his salvation in the book of Exodus and on. I want to know our sovereign God. I want to behold him in all that he is. I don't want to deny a bit of it. I want to be in wonder of him, in awe of him, in fear of him, in love with him. And so this is God. And so what do you do if this troubles you? What do you do if you can't at this point in your Christian walk, stomach this truth. And what if you do if this is offensive to you and it's even making you angry? What do you do if the thought going through your head is, why can't we just preach the gospel and just not do these things? I'd, I'd take it to prayer before the Lord. Ask Him for faith to see the truth of it. I would re- have you realize that You and I have the patience of our God working with us, sanctifying us, teaching us incrementally truth. Doesn't expect us to enjoy all of it all at once. There are some tastes in the Bible, some doctrines that are very enjoyable immediately. They're like, um, 
uh, apple pie. Everybody likes them, unless you're Russian. Everybody likes apple pie right away, but not everybody likes coffee. Not not everybody likes, I don't know, tastes that take some time and have to be acquired and matured. And so that could be this. And so have patience. But be willing to admit that it's in the Bible and it's hard. Be willing to worship the God who is this God, to fear him, to love him, to tremble before him, and ultimately to turn to Christ. That's what we should be doing here. This doctrine isn't given so that you can wonder if you're part of his elect. This doctrine isn't given so that you can wonder if somebody that you dislike is a part of the elect. This doctrine is ultimately given to you so that you can worship God, find confidence in his saving power. All right, so that's enough about that. Um, What I want to do now is uh, take some time for the rest of the sermon, there are some parallels between our text and Genesis 3. Uh, which would make sense, because in Genesis 1 and 2, you have the creation, and, and then in Genesis 3, you have the fall and the turning, rebellion against God, and here it, it, we have a, another creation event, if you will. God has wiped the earth clean. He's, we're at a new creation, and so here we encounter almost like a second fall if you will. And so there's a, some parallels between this. I just pointed this to in a sermon I listened to this week. And, and so I wanted to, I, I think this is interesting. And I think it'll help us find some application here and, and see the gospel here. And so one of the interesting parallels between what we see here in Genesis 9, 18 to 29 and Genesis 3 is fruit play a, a central role in both passages. Of course, in Genesis 3, you have the... Um, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, some kind of fruit there, and uh, Eve is tempted to eat of it. And now you have uh, Noah who planted a vineyard as grapes, a fruit, <clears throat> and they become something that he misuses towards sin. And so you have this issue of fruit. Uh, we see again that like Adam and Eve were told to fill and subdue the earth, so Adam and his, or Noah and his sons were given that, and here they're doing it. They are uh, becoming farmers and advanced. And so again, if you buy into the uh, modern party line of thinking, man was first dwelt in caves and were nomadic and and didn't have this kind of technology or ability, and that isn't true here. One of the earliest men in earliest history has a vineyard, is producing wine and uh, apparently very potent wine. and so man from the beginning was made in God's image with great ability. And so Noah here is a rather good gardener. And so glory to God for you gardeners. It's a very godly thing you're doing. Uh, it's, it's good work. And so uh, keep doing it. Um, but as is happens because of our fallen nature, we can twist what is good into sin. And so uh, we got to talk about alcohol here. And so I want to do that. And this is a good passage to do it from. Because one of the things I want to do with this, if I can, is some of you um, enjoy alcohol and, and you see it as a good gift of God and that's good, but I, I want to prick your conscience if I can because you might look down on others who don't drink and you might think there's something wrong with them. And so I, I want to uh, bring some conviction to you. And then there's some of you who don't think we should drink alcohol and abstain and I'd like to... Uh, prick your conscience as well and allow, uh, give you hopefully some greater freedom in this. Because here we see it's obviously a good thing that Noah is doing. This planting of a vineyard and making wine is seen as a good thing here. It's a good gift of God. We read in Psalm 104, 15, you, God, cause wine to gladden the heart of man. And so Noah here is doing a godly thing. It's striking, isn't it, that one of the first things we read after the flood, one of the first activities that Noah does is plant a vineyard. Uh, If you talk to Roger, he's kind of a survival outdoorsman. Roger, if one of the first things you did post-flood to survive, would you plant a vineyard? No, (laughs) right? You'd build a shelter. You'd 
figured out how to make fire. I mean, this isn't one of the, and here's one of the first things. Uh, and so alcohol is a good gift of God. It, it can be enjoyed to God's glory. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good thing. The, the celebration of the Lord's Supper. They, Jesus used wine. He used alcoholic beverage in the celebration of it. So the God in flesh drank alcohol. It, it's a good gift. Um, and, and so we can do it. Now, there are some, and there are brothers and sisters, there's here, and we don't want division over this at all, um, but there are some who don't think that Christians should ever drink alcohol. Um, and they often make the case that because alcohol has been so grievously abused, because it's caused such destruction in lives and in families in our society, that we should just not do it. And I have sympathy for that. My own family of origin has lots of drug and alcohol abuse in it. Not, not my uh, mom and dad and siblings, but my aunts and uncles and grandparents and so forth. Uh, I've seen it. I still see it. And, and some family members, and so I get it. But that line of thinking isn't a biblical line of thinking. Um, the way to recover from the misuse of a substance isn't to abstain, but to learn how to use it godly. So for instance, the gun debate is raging again, and many of us who see uh, weapons as a good gift of God to be used and harvesting game and protecting ourselves, we would say the gun isn't the problem, right? Guns don't kill people. Men and women with wicked hearts use guns and knives and their hands to kill people. The problem isn't the object. The problem is the person, the heart of the person. And yet I think when it comes to alcohol, you inconsistently... uh, deny that same truth in relation to alcohol that would use with guns. The alcohol isn't the problem. Right? The substance isn't the problem. It's our wicked human hearts. And so we shouldn't deny a good gift of God. We have freedom in Christ to use and enjoy these things rightly to God's glory. And yet, as we see here, these things are often abused. And they do cause real destruction. Drunkenness is a shameful thing. It's an embarrassing thing. It's a sin. And repeated drunkenness, habitual drunkenness, really does destroy lives and families, societies. It can be awful. We are not to get drunk on wine, Ephesians 5.18. If you read the book of Proverbs, you'll see both the blessings of alcohol and the curses of it. It says that those who tarry long over wine will be bitten like by a serpent and will have woe and sorrow and strife and complaining and wounds, Proverbs 3.29-25. This is true often when somebody kind of gets into their late teens and early 20s. Instead of a godly use of alcohol, you spend many of those years in drunkenness, foolishness, and committing grievous sins because of your abuse of alcohol. It sometimes can continue into life and your marriage, and you ruin it, and you hurt your children with continued drunkenness. It's a shameful thing. It really is embarrassing to see somebody who's drunk. They're out of control. They're not in their mind. They make a fool of themselves. They're under control of something that God has given us for good. And why do we do this? Isn't it often just because we want to be thought cool by people? We want to be approved by people. We want the acceptance of people. And so we'll join them in drunkenness just so that we can be accepted by them. And so we want as a church to hold the biblical line. We don't want to go above and below it. The biblical line is God has given us all of these things, including alcohol, to be used for godly purposes to his glory. Drunkenness is a sin. We will not deny it. And if you're a repeated drunk, we'll we'll call you on it. We'll lovingly call you out of it. 
But if you also deny the good yeast of alcohol, we'll, we'll call you out on that too. We want to just hold the biblical line. <clears throat> and so Noah here has re-entered a cleansed world. And one of the first things he does is sin against God grievously. Isn't that true of us? Don't you see yourself there? How many times in your life have you seen God do something spectacular and the very next thing you do is sin greatly? Isn't that true of us? That's just us. We'll have a, a big win in our life, a big victory in our life, and the next day or the next week we find ourselves just ashamed of ourselves for our ingratitude to God and sin. And one thing Noah can't do is blame others. There's, <laughs> there's nobody else around him to blame. It's him and his wife and a couple of kids. Right? He can't blame the government. He's the government. <laughs> and he can't blame his boss. And he's the boss. He, and so we see again here, the problem is our hearts. The problem is Noah. The problem is you and me. And so drunkenness uh, is a sin. Alcohol is a good gift of God to be used rightly. One of the things that we might struggle with in this passage is the issue of nakedness. Noah, upon getting drunk, did what drunk people do, something stupid. He unclothed himself and laid down naked in his house. Right? In his house. <clears throat> Um, and, and, and the text draws attention to his nakedness, um, to his uncoveredness. In our culture, we're an immodest culture. We see showing flesh as a good thing. Um, uh, you know, if you go to Hodeg Beach, you'll see it. Uncovering yourself except for very the most private areas of your body is acceptable. It, in, in almost every other culture, it isn't. It, it, uh, we're, we're an immodest culture, and, and so if you come to this, you don't see the shamefulness of, of Noah doing this. Um, and so I just want to encourage you here, uh, as both men and women, to, con to consider here, this is a place that we can really be different than our culture with how we dress and what we reveal and what we won't reveal. And I'd encourage you in your home to be very careful, to keep good boundaries. Um, I had a, one of my best friends growing up, if you'd go to his, his house, his dad after work would come down in his whitey tighties. It didn't matter who was there. And it was embarrassing. Um, it was, <laughs> girls, boy, it didn't matter. And sometimes in households, dad will do that. Uh, they'll allow kids to do that. And, and just your young boys are going to struggle with lust, and they don't need to see their sisters, if I can be honest, and vice versa. So when they're changing the room, make sure the doors are closed. Um, teach your kids to knock before entering a room. Uh, uh, but let's live differently in this world and, and not... Um, attract attention by what we show, but by our godliness. Now, in uh, another parallel other than the fruit, and, and the second one was the shame of nakedness. If you remember, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, um, they realized they were naked and they were ashamed. And here we see the same thing. Noah is uncovered and it's shameful. And in Genesis, if you remember, Adam and Eve tried to cover their shames themselves and did a poor job of it. But God came and slaughtered animals and sacrifice and knit together nice clothes and covered their nakedness and shame. And we see the gospel there. And here in this text, we see the same. Shem and Jepheth cover their father's shame. They cover it nakedness. They don't broadcast it like ham. They cover it. And this is the gospel, brothers and sisters. This is the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the lamb. He is the one slaughtered. He is the one sacrificed. And he is the one who covers the sin of our nakedness and shame. 
And so nakedness in the Bible is, is an illustration for sin. Sin is to be uncovered. Sin is to be ashamed. And Jesus Christ comes and covers our nakedness. He covers our sin. He covers our shame. God isn't the kind of God who broadcasts our shame. He is the kind of God who sends his son to die on a cross to take away our guilt, to take away our sin, to cover our shame. Satan is the kind who comes and reminds you of it constantly, doesn't he? He brings to mind all of your sins. It doesn't matter how long. You can be, still be embarrassed and ashamed of sins you committed in the fifth grade. Because your enemy and your flesh and this world want to constantly hold guilt over you. This is the power the world uses, isn't it? The power the world uses today is the power of guilt. Today it's white guilt. It's being a man guilt. It's being wealthy guilt. And the world uses that to put pressure on you to control you, ultimately for you to give more money. But God is not that kind of a God. He doesn't try to get your obedience by putting a hook of guilt in your flesh. He, he woos your obedience by forgiving all of your sin, removing all of your guilt, showing you his fatherly love, and then calling you forward in obedience. God is completely different than this world. God is completely different than your spouse. <laughs> Right? Sorry to laugh there. What do you do to your spouse? And you put the hook of guilt in his nose or her nose and lead him around. Not God. God forgives it. God says, I remember it no more. I move as far as the east from the west. I never bring it up again. The way I get your obedience is by love. That's how God is. That's how God is with us. That's why we sang in this song, his commandments, his commandments, his commandments are a good thing. God doesn't put, hey, parents do this to their kids too, don't you parents? And you remind your kids of all you do for them and you brought them in the world and you just pile on the guilt to get them to do what you want them to do. Right? That's not always a bad thing. But that's not how God works. And he forgives sin. He removes it. Then we come to the main point of this passage. The main point of this passage is honoring authority. Ham dishonors and shames his father. And Shem and Jepheth honor his father. And I think the most interesting thing in this passage is that the command in the Bible, honor your father and the mother, sometimes what we do is we get ourselves off the hook is honor your father and mother and then we create in our minds a little princess that isn't there as long as he's honorable. And here, the first instance of the Bible held up high of two men, Shem and Japheth, that honor their father in great way is when their father is dishonorable. The example in the Bible of honoring your father is right here. And the example is given when the father is least worthy of this kind of honor. Isn't that wonderful how God does this to us? They don't show Noah as this spectacular father who's righteous and always does the right thing. They show Noah naked, drunk in his tent. And at that point, God holds up for you an example of, here's how you honor dad. Here's how you honor mom. When they're most shameful and embarrassing, is when you have the ripest opportunity to show your obedience and allegiance to God, your Father in heaven, by honoring your father or your mother. Isn't that amazing here? And doesn't that just make you sick over your own life if you reflect on it and how you've treated your own mom and dad? How you've dishonored them. Shem and Jepheth will not let the shame of their father be seen. Look at the detail given in the text for how carefully they go about this. When you look at Ham, the account of what Ham did, it's really quick and it's punchy. Right? And Ham saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers. It's just boom, real quick. It's fast. It's hard. 
And then you get to Shem and Jepheth, and it just slows way down. Then Shem and Jepheth took a garment, and they laid it on their shoulders, and they walked backward, and they covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned backward, and they did not know their father's nakedness. Right? The text just slows you way down and draws your attention to the godliness of their honor of their father. And it just punches you with the dishonor of Ham. And if I can go back to our confession of sin, who are you in this story? Now, the principle here isn't just honoring father. It's honoring the authority God has given you in your life. This is your boss. This is your government, local rulers or state rulers or national rulers. This is your policemen. This is your father. This is your mother. This is your pastors. This is your elders. This is your teacher. And Christians are those who are supposed to do everything they can do to honor and cover the sin of their superiors and not broadcast it. Isn't this a wonderful standard of godliness? How do you talk about your superiors with your equals? Do you know what I mean here? By superiors, I don't mean more worth and honor before God. I mean people who have higher authority than you do, have authority over you. Right? Because griping is always up the food chain. You don't ever really gripe about people that, that you have authority over. You always gripe about those who have authority over you with people like you. So at work, how do you talk with your peers about your superiors? How do you talk about the sin of your superiors with your peers? Because your bosses are going to sin. You do realize God did not give you angels for fathers and mothers and bosses and cops and teachers. and He gave you devils. He gave you pastors who sin and elders who sin and fathers who sin and mayors who sin. And, right? They're going to sin against you. How do you handle it? What do you do with it? Do you repeat it or do you cover it? Do we refuse to spread it or do we take joy and delight in gossiping? Right. I just find this text utterly convicting. Utterly convicting. Because ultimately... God is the one who places all authority in our lives. And this kind of dishonoring is ultimately dishonoring God. All submission to authority on earth is showing our submission to authority in God. One of the most striking passages in the Bible in relation to this. What did I do with it? We have time. We don't have time. Um, So I'll just have you look at it. In Mark 7, 6 to 13, look at it later. Jesus is teaching on to the Pharisees and telling them that vain worship is coming on Sunday morning and raising your hands when during the week all you've done is dishonor dad. He says, you teach people that instead of taking care of their elderly parents, they should give their money and their time to the church. And so you dishonor dad and then you come and worship Jesus on Sunday morning. Jesus calls vain worship dishonoring father and then coming and singing on Sunday. Dishonoring boss, dishonoring teacher, dishonoring. Striking passage. So don't take part in the gossip of the authorities God has given in your lives. It kills them. I can tell you by firsthand experience, it rips the heart out of those that God has given for your good. It, it is, it is awful. It is awful. So, at the close of this text, then we see Ham is cursed, Sheth 
or Seth and Shem, sorry, Shem and Jepheth are blessed. And again, here we see strikingly the curse isn't on Ham but on Canaan, Ham's son, his youngest son. That's a bit strange. It's not that strange for us though because we know that we are fallen in sin because of our father, Adam, and then we are saved because of our second Adam, Jesus. So we understand that we are represented by people upstream from us. And then um, Shem isn't blessed. In verse 26, the Lord of Shem is blessed. Shem is the line of Christ. Shem is the one that we have salvation in, and Noah is already professing faith in this promised salvation that he knows is coming through Shem. And then, in verse 27, may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. That's us. We find salvation only in Christ. We who were once far off have been brought near. We who were once without God, without hope, now have full assurance of adoption as sons in the descendant of Shem, though we are Jepheth. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel for those who dishonor fathers. We dwell in the tent of our heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, give us grace to receive your word with gladness, to take the conviction that we receive under it and go to the cross. Not to guilt, not to works, not to comparing ourselves to others, not to reminding ourselves of how good we've done, but just coming to Jesus and laying it all before him. And then teach us how to love and honor fathers and mothers and teachers and bosses and pastors and all of them. Um, May we be different in the world here because we love you and because you have forgiven all of our sins. And so God, please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. The charge is this, to you uh, older folks, where you have dishonored towards your father and mother, I would encourage you, if you haven't gone and asked forgiveness, to do so now and to forgive him or her. And uh, for dads, I want to charge you to never tolerate the dishonor of your son or daughter of their mother. Don't let it go by. Don't let it go unchecked. Don't let it go unpunished. And then to you, younger sons and daughters, the charge to you is honor your father and mother this week. Take it serious. The Lord promises you a good life, a long life, and the land that he's giving you if you'll do it. And so let's do it this week. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen. God bless you this week in the Lord. I love you.